0: I want you to think back to the last tense conversation you've had. Some of you just coming out of the holidays don't have to think too far in the past. Or maybe the last heated email or text message that you received in which you could tell that the other person was either upset or deeply concerned. Typically those types of conversations and communications get right to the point they might still be wordy depending on the person but there isn't any of the usual small talk and pleasantries that often accompany our communication galatians is one of those types of letters if you've read through the letters that we find in the new testament you might be accustomed to a letter beginning with some flowery and cordial language A statement like I thank my God every time I remember you. That's not present in Galatians. There's something so pressing, so urgent, so critical taking place among these churches that the Apostle Paul has no time to waste. We're beginning a sermon series today that will take us through the entirety of this letter. This was actually a a series that I intended to preach some years ago, shortly after coming to Living Word. It's been incubating for quite a while, so so I'm excited about walking us through this brilliant, challenging, and freeing letter. As you can probably assume, this letter was meant to be read and received sort of in one helping. We don't get many actual letters in the mail anymore, but let's say that you received a a multi-page Christmas letter from a friend who lives out of state. It would be pretty strange to read a handful of sentences one week and then not come back to it until the next week and take several months to work your way through the letter. No, you'd sit down and you would read the letter from beginning to end. And so I would encourage you to do that this next week as we begin our time in this letter to get get a feel for for how this letter progresses to get a sense of the lay of the land in this letter one quick definition before we begin i mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago the word epistle this is not a word that we use in modern english and so it's always helpful to find those types of words epistle is just another word for for letter they're used interchangeably. It's a title given to the letters that we find in the New Testament. Uh, And so uh, we begin this series today, and as we do, we will uh, hope to accomplish two things. Uh, First, we will introduce the letter by exploring the author, the recipients, some of the history associated with with the letter, and then identifying some of the major themes. And, And then after that introduction, Uh, we will look at Paul's words, particularly in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1, as he starts off the letter uh, with a clear and direct description of the gospel. Sermon text for today from Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And I would remind you that this is God's word to us. Paul, an apostle... Sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, uh, we pray that our time in this letter, which is inspired by by you through the Apostle Paul, we we pray that it would strengthen our faith and deepen our hope and joy and peace. May we find assurance in your one-way, extravagant love, for sinners. And may your grace take hold of our hearts more firmly than ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take some time this morning as we begin our journey in Galatians to give us the context and sort of a foundational understanding upon which we can build as we work our way through the letter. In verse 1 of our text, we see that this letter begins the same way that all of the letters that we find in the New Testament began with an introduction of the author. And in this case, the author has introduced himself as Paul. Paul, of course, wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. Formerly a Jewish Pharisee, one of the most rigid and legalistic religious sects in Judaism at the time, Paul was well acquainted with Jewish history. But he was sent as an evangelist, as an apostle, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. He was the leader of the mission effort all around the known world. Uh, We don't know the exact date of Paul's birth, but it's widely assumed that he was born right around the same time that Jesus was born. Uh, Although Paul was born uh, north of the Mediterranean Sea in southern Turkey in a town uh, named Tarsus, but he was educated in Jerusalem as the disciple of one of the most prominent Jewish rabbis of his day. After his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul uh, Paul began to understand and began to believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament law that he had spent his life learning. He, he saw how All of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all of the imagery resulted or were fulfilled in Christ. And so his mission changed completely from defending Judaism and defending God against the threat and the evil and the blasphemy of Christianity to fully embracing Christ as Lord and God. And you'll discover in Galatians, Paul was... We might say passionate and at times punchy and even sarcastic. The very first way that Paul describes himself to us in the letter right away in verse 1 is by using the word apostle. An apostle is one sent out on behalf of another a messenger and an envoy an ambassador and in verse 1 he clarifies that he is an apostle Sent not from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's making a clear argument here for his calling and his authority and his purpose in ministry. He's sent out on behalf of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He's proclaiming the message of Jesus and doing the work of Jesus to those uh, people to whom he is sent. He will emphasize this again in coming paragraphs, the the fact that this message isn't from human beings, but from God. And then in verse 2, we find uh, this uh, statement. He says, and all the brothers and sisters with me. This will make sense a little later in the letter when we see how Paul is going to quite directly confront some false teaching that, that was happening in the Galatian churches. And so he's sort of saying here, hey, what you're about to read isn't just from me. This isn't just my opinion, but it's also from all of the others who are doing the work of the gospel with me. They all agree with what I'm about to say. We're all of one mind on this. He's building his credibility as he prepares to say some really difficult things about what is happening in these churches. Next, we find those to whom Paul addresses the letter to the churches in Galatia. Now it's important to note that this letter isn't written to one church but to churches, plural. Uh, So we're probably intended to think of this and understand this letter as a circular letter that would be circulated uh, among the churches in the region. Galatia was a province, not a town. It was located in in Asia Minor, so this is a map of modern-day Turkey So Galatia is sort of the middle of modern day Turkey from north to south. Uh, One of the things you'll realize if you look at ancient maps is that there are different shapes given to this province. Ancient boundary lines moved a lot more than they do today as different people groups uh, came to power and fell from power. And so uh, this is one rendering of the territory that made up Galatia. It's a large province. Uh, The modern nation of Turkey is a large nation. Uh, and so this is a, is a large province. We don't know exactly uh, where the churches were that he was writing to. There's some debate about that. But we know that this was the, the rough area to which Paul uh, was writing. And what we know is that the churches uh, that t- to whom he writes were under attack by false teachers who were corrupting the message of the gospel. Uh, the name Galatians has some interesting history the name comes from the word Gauls Uh, if you know anything about European history you've probably heard of the Gauls it's a name that that is used uh, interchangeably many people don't realize but it's used interchangeably with Celts Uh, more of us might be familiar with the Celts it's the same people group emerging from the 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 area surrounding the Danube river in central Europe Uh, these people then migrated in all directions as they uh, really succeeded as a society, they migrated in all directions including to, to France, to uh, Great Britain, Germany, Switzerland, and uh, Turkey or Asia Minor as it was known at that time. Uh, those who settled in France, were, uh, in, in, particularly in France, were often known as the Gauls, uh, those in Britain uh, more often known as the Celts, and, and those in Asia Minor or Turkey as the Galatians. Uh, so if you've taken one of those uh, 23andMe DNA tests and have any Gaul or Celtic uh, heritage in you, you uh, have historical connections to these people to whom Paul writes this letter. This area of the world had uh, an interesting religious background and context as well that is helpful for us. As many of you know, by the time of Jesus, there had been a dispersion that was already taking place among the Jewish people throughout the known world. They were being driven out of uh, modern-day Palestine, the Middle East, and uh, and sent around the known world. Uh, and as Roman pressure increased in Palestine, uh, more and more Jews were finding new homes uh, throughout uh, especially modern-day Europe. Uh, for example, we know that there were Jews uh, present in uh, actually, Jews from Rome, present in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. That's recorded for us, that there were Jews who had moved to Rome, who were back on pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost when uh, the Holy Spirit descended upon his church. Uh, and, and And this is certainly true for Galatia as well. There is a Jewish presence in this area. We'll discuss that more when we talk about the theological crisis that's taking place. Uh, But there was also the presence of uh, what we might call Greco-Roman religious culture. Uh, You might think of this as a a soup um, made up of three parts. One part, uh, Greek and Roman philosophy. Some of you uh, in in high school had to learn about the Greek and Roman philosophers. Uh, So there's sort of one part, Greek and Roman philosophy. One part, worship of Greek and Roman gods. uh, And then one part, worship of the emperor, whoever the emperor was at the time. And that was sort of the soup that people, the religious soup, that people were raised in. Uh, There were diverse thoughts, it was a diverse area religiously, from temple sacrifices made to Greek gods, uh, to the sort of agnostic or atheistic beliefs that were common among the philosophers of the age. So there was a Jewish presence, uh, but we get the sense as we work through the letter that that primarily Paul is writing to uh, Gentile believers that made up the majority of these churches uh, by all accounts Galatians is one of the first New Testament letters written uh, probably in the year 48 or 49 AD so that gives you a little bit of a reference point pretty early on in in the history of the church uh, some some argue some scholars argue that first Thessalonians preceded it uh, pretty good chance that Galatians was the very first of the letters Uh, to be written. Uh, One more thing I'll mention just briefly uh, before we get into sort of the meat of the letter Uh, in chapter 6 Paul tells us that he wrote this letter with his own hand he wrote it himself. Uh, We know that typically from other letters Paul usually used a secretary Uh, so you can kind of imagine Paul pacing back and forth in the room a passionate guy speaking as his secretary took notes and wrote the letter down here Paul tells us in chapter 6 that he wrote it with his own hands. He says, see what big letters I used. Uh, as he, you can kind of imagine that person who texts in all caps. Uh, that's sort of what Paul is doing uh, here in this letter. Uh, writing it himself. He's, we might assume he's so passionate, so concerned about what's happening in these churches. That he writes it in his own hand. Uh, so we know a little bit about Paul. A little bit about the, the Galatians. Uh, I I was uh, trained as a history teacher, so this is all super interesting to me. Probably not as interesting to you. Uh, So let's get into uh, some more of the meat of of the introduction. Uh, I want to identify first the major crisis that was happening in the Galatian churches. And then I'll mention uh, some related sub-themes that we'll encounter in the letter. So first, the crisis that was occurring in the Galatian churches was this. Uh, The teaching that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone was under attack and being replaced with teaching that we are saved by Jesus plus the law, the law of Moses. In other words, uh, just Jesus alone was being replaced with Jesus plus something added on to Jesus. That the clear and simple gospel of Jesus Christ was being. Twisted, was being added to. We'll talk in coming weeks uh, about how they were twisting it. Uh, But this is what you need to understand for today. That the teaching that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone was under attack and being replaced with teaching that we are saved by Jesus plus the law of Moses. And now I want to look at some of the related sub-themes that kind of come out of that, that we're going to identify throughout this letter we'll observe uh, the following that the, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is clear and exclusive we are justified through faith in Christ alone we'll underst- will we'll receive a proper understanding of god uh, of the, the work and the role and the purpose of god's law god's promise that all who believe are his children and that Christ brings true freedom Uh, Now, with that introduction, let's take a look at the opening words of the letter, starting in verse 3, where we find a, a clear definition and description of the gospel. Paul says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. Uh, Paul greets the Galatian Christians with sort of that typical apostolic greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in in many of Paul's letters. Uh, But then what follows is sort of a beautiful description of what we believe as Christians. We use the word gospel pretty often. Sometimes it's a word, for example, when we're referring to our gospel reading this morning, that can be used interchangeably with God's word or the scriptures. Uh, But more often than not, the the word gospel is an expression of the good news of what Jesus has done for us. The word itself means good news. And so when you hear the word gospel today, think of it as the good news of what Christ has done for us. For you and in verses 3 through 5 we have a clear and direct explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and I'll handle it in four statements that I think summarize what we find in our text and the first one is this the gospel is Jesus Christ offered up for our sins Uh, these words are perhaps uh, the most The most profound, the most powerful, maybe the most comforting words found in the Bible. That Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, these words don't mean anything. But for all of us who see and know our sin, who know the the selfishness that lies in our own hearts, For all of you who see the effect of sin in your relationships, in your families, in your workplace. If you've taken inventory of your own heart compared with the standard of perfection that God has demanded of us. This one phrase is the best possible news that we could imagine. That Jesus gave himself for sins, for our sins, or for sinners. This is the very core, the very center of the Christian faith that all have sinned against God but that God took on flesh and gave himself in our place absorbed the wrath against sin so that he might at the same time remain just and honest and true but also be the one who makes all things right who justifies sinners in other words in Christ God provides exactly What he requires. Jesus takes my sin upon himself. And he gives me the the one thing that I desperately need. But could never achieve. And that's righteousness. That's to be right with God. This is the core of of who we are as a church. We are not primarily a a community. A social club. An organization. Those things can be part of who we are. Part of what we do, but but first and foremost, we are people called and gathered together to proclaim the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, what he's done for you, what he's done for me, that he offered himself up for our sins. This is, this is why Paul is so adamant, and, and you will see how adamant Paul is, how passionate he is as he defends the simplicity and the clarity of the gospel in this letter. Because the only hope for sinners, for you and for me, is in the fact that Christ was offered up as a sacrifice for sin and that his offering is sufficient. Uh, The second uh, thing that I want to point out from our text is this. The, The gospel is Jesus Christ rescuing us from this present evil Age. Here it's made clear that the gospel isn't just for eternity, that it's not just about getting our affairs in order before we die. The gospel, justification, salvation is just as much about today as it is about eternity. The gospel is the announcement of rescue. It's an emancipation proclamation, declaring freedom for all who are in Christ now when you hear the phrase this present evil age uh, your mind might instantly run to matters of morality that's sort of how we're trained to the to the us versus them rhetoric that's so common today but but i'd caution you against that if you read through the whole letter you'll see that that paul is going to repeatedly draw this distinction between those in this present age and those who are part of the age to come. I'll give you a couple of examples in <clears throat> in chapter 3 verse 23 he says uh, before the coming of this faith we were held in custody under the law. So before this faith came we were held in custody before after there's this contrast. Or in chapter 4 verse 8 he says formerly when you didn't know God you were slaves. Uh, we see this sort of two categories uh, all throughout the the letter. Two ages, two kingdoms. In fact, the letter is going to end with uh, the distinction between old, uh, the old creation and the new creation. And this isn't merely a matter of looking forward from this present evil age toward eternity. Uh, that new age, this new creation, this new kingdom that Paul is going to talk about is is now when we trust in Christ. In other words, it's for today. The gospel is for today, not just for eternity. All that Jesus has done for us changes things today. We are rescued, delivered, set free today. It's not fully realized. We don't experience the fullness of it yet, but it is reality. The third thing that we see in our text is this, that the gospel focuses us on God's will Not our own. Listen to these words. He says grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins. To rescue us from the present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father. These are powerful words. When speaking of being saved. Being rescued. Paul speaks uh, about Paul speaks in such a way that directs our attention away from ourselves and on to God and his will. In other words, we might say salvation is not a matter of your will, but of God's will. If your hope for eternity, if your if all of your hope for eternal life rested in your own will and your own desires and your own resolve you would most certainly be damned. If left to yourself, you would never choose God on your own. You would always choose yourself. This is what the gospel always does. It shows me that the only part that I play in my salvation, the only thing that I bring with me to the equation, is my sin that Jesus can save me from. Every other aspect of salvation is god's work and according to his will i can't tell you how many times i've heard someone talk about the gospel to have it be all about what that person must do and not about the clarity and sufficiency of what christ has already done if you're talking about salvation and you're talking about what you do it's not the gospel Think of how people often refer to receiving God's gift of salvation. They use language like, I, I asked Jesus into my heart, or I decided to follow Jesus, or I made a decision for Christ. And certainly those phrases describe one angle, right? They describe our human perspective of what has happened, but, but they fail, uh, they, they fall uh, woefully short of what is actually happening when we come to faith in Christ the gospel the true gospel always focuses us on God and his will and what he has done and not on our own will not on what we could do the the gospel always takes our eyes off of ourselves and focuses us on what God has done on what God has declared because there is no assurance To be found if my will is is what we are looking to uh, for hope for the life to come. If we are looking to my will, to my desires, to my work, to the things that I can accomplish. There is no assurance. But there is full assurance to be found. If my salvation is a matter primarily of God's will and God's work. Well, the final thing that we discover about the gospel in our text is this. That the gospel results in glory to God. This paragraph might actually be, if you were to look at it in your Bible, you might actually uh, rightly assume that it's a doxology. It's an expression of praise and honor and glory to God. And and I think this is true in a couple ways. Uh, First, when the gospel brings salvation to a sinner... God is always glorified. The the honor and praise and credit go to God alone. Even though human beings often try to take some praise and credit for their salvation, truly the, the, the praise, the glory, the credit always goes to God alone. All of the glory goes to God. Heaven rejoices, the scriptures tell us. God is most glorified when one who is dead in their sin is brought to new life in Christ. And so the gospel results in glory to God. But there's a personal aspect to this as well. The second way that the gospel results in glory to God is that when we actually believe the gospel, we can't help but offer up our hearts and our lives in worship to him. This is something we'll discover in our time in Galatians. We... We often think that the best way to to encourage or to motivate someone else to live for Jesus is through the law. Through through guilt, through commands, through manipulation. But but what God knows, because he is the law giver, is that the law can never produce what it requires. We're going to see this very clearly in Galatians. The law cannot save. The law cannot lead us or force us to glorify God. It cannot set our hearts free. Only the gospel brings freedom. Only the good news sets us free to glorify God. The the gospel is the focal point of this letter. The gospel is Jesus Christ offered up for our sins. The gospel is Jesus Christ rescuing us From the present evil age, the gospel focuses us on God's will and not our own. And the gospel results in glory to God. The, The message of Galatians, I think you will discover, is one of great gospel freedom. It's the message that Jesus has done everything. That you can't add a thing to what Jesus has accomplished. And if you try to add something... It ceases to be good news. It's no longer the gospel. I think you'll discover in our time in this letter. That it is the source of great peace. Hope and assurance. In the life of the sinner. In his uh, commentary on Galatians. And I'm going to close with this today. uh, Martin Luther wrote that. he, uh, He encouraged his parishioners. To memorize the words of our text for today those great gospel words, so that they would be able to answer the devil, the accuser, the, the enemy, when he overwhelms them with their guilt and their sin and, and calls them sinners. And he said, he said this, he said, Speak to the devil like this. Because you say I am a sinner, therefore I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. No, I say, for I fly unto Christ, who has given himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan, you shall not prevail against me in setting forth the greatness of my sins. And so bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair. Rather, in saying I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapon against yourself. That with your own sword, I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet. For Christ died for sinners. You put in my mind God's fatherly love toward me, a wretched and damned sinner. And as often as you object that I am a sinner, you cause me to remember the benefit of Christ, my redeemer, upon whose shoulders and not upon mine lie all my sins. When you say I am a sinner, you don't terrify me. You comfort me above all measure. Why? Because Christ died for sinners. Because Jesus came not for the healthy, but for the sick. If you are in Christ today, you can live with that degree of confidence because Jesus gave himself for your sins we don't we don't crumple under the weight of our sin we repent we allow those gospel words to remind us that Christ himself bore that very sin upon his shoulders upon the cross we can we can look the accuser in the eye and tell him to go back to the place where he belongs Because whenever I am reminded of my sin, which is often. I'm also reminded of the one who gave himself for my sin. Who took my shame. And who is pleased to rescue me. And call me his very own. And to him be glory forever and ever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news. Thank you for the confidence that we can have. Knowing that we're sinners when we see our sin, when we're reminded of how sinful we are, that it doesn't cause us to be terrified, that it doesn't leave us uh, weighed down. Because we're also in the same breath reminded that you sent your son to be offered up for our sins that our sin isn't weighing us down. It isn't upon our shoulders, but it is upon your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that in your great love, you gave him for our sins. To rescue us from this present evil age, according to your will. And may you be glorified now and forever. Amen.